you know, those those friends you have that say, oh, I eat whatever I want, and you know, I, I don't seem to gain weight. They, they probably have healthy diets and good micro, microbiomes. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, how the gut microbiome responds to the food we eat, and how healthy microbes can influence our weight, immune system, and even our mental health. Cardiologist Darius Mosafarian, who you heard at the top of the show, is joined by other experts for a conversation called Healthy Gut, Healthy Body. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Microbiomes are communities of microorganisms found in plants, oceans, the atmosphere, the ground, and people. The human microbiome includes the bacterial communities in the gut. When it comes to a healthy body and mind, many people are focusing on improving these bacteria. Probiotics and yogurt and pills is a growing market. Those searching for a cure for everything from infections to autism are turning to fecal transplants. Buyer beware. The experts on today's show say some of these cure-alls are dangerous. Their discussion also touches on society's overuse of antibiotics and how it's affecting our health. Scientists are just beginning to scratch the surface of the role of the microbiome in diet. That's where our conversation starts. Jonathan Eisen is a professor at UC Davis in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Immunology. Harriet Washington wrote the book, Infectious Madness, The Surprising Science of How We Catch Mental Illness. James Hamblin moderates the conversation. He's a writer at The Atlantic. Cardiologist Darius Mosafarian begins the talk. He says healthy eating isn't just about nutrients, fats, carbs, and proteins. Ensuring your gut is in good shape is equally important. You know, the, the science of the food choices that make us healthy are based on what we observe in people, which already accounts for the microbiome. So I think, you know, what we understand now about a healthy diet, you know, that it's really about foods, not nutrients. It's about food patterns. It's about eating minimally processed healthy foods. One of the rules, rules of thumb I give is we need to eat foods that give rise to life. So fruits, nuts, seeds, beans, whole grains. If you think about the package of phytochemicals and bioactives that help nurture a new life, right? That's what we want to be putting in our bodies. And on the other hand, the refined grains and starches and processed meats and sugary beverages, mostly refined carbohydrates and starches that are the biggest problem in the food supply. We know that those are good for health. We know those are good or bad for obesity, diabetes. We're now starting to understand that much of that effect, or at least some of that effect, is actually operating through the micro changes in the microbiome. So when you say food that gives rise to life, that could also be stated as probiotic. That is a kind of hot word right now, probably worth an industry that is booming and set to continue to boom. Is there anything to the products out there right now that are labeled probiotic? Maybe, Jonathan, you can talk about Well, about I mean, so, so, I mean, one really interesting thing that the whole microbiome is about is it's changing our focus from microbes that make us sick in some obvious way, the so-called pathogens, to microbes that either somehow benefit our health in some way or maybe have no effect in, in general. And probiotics is this term that's sort of generally used to describe microbes that at least theoretically have some beneficial effect to 
the host when they get exposed to them. But the market for probiotics has sort of gone, you know, out of control in a lot of ways. There are unquestionably probiotic-associated microbes that have beneficial health effects for, you know, preventing infection or for tampening inflammation or for doing a variety of things. Um, and, you know, some of those are out there in specific products. Some of those are in yogurt. Some of those are in various other, you know, pill form. Um, there are lots of things out there that probably have no beneficial effect, but there's no doubt that taking certain types of, ingesting certain types of microbes can have beneficial effects. And so, you know, I'd, I'd like to add to that. And so I think we're, we both, we talked a little bit before the panel, we both want to highlight how new this evidence is. So we, we're just scratching the surface, as, as I think, in the scientific community. Um, of, so, you know, we don't know a lot of the, the details. But in 2011, just five years ago, we published the first report ever, you know, that, that people who ate more yogurt, more calories from yogurt, sweetened or unsweetened, gained less weight. And so they're eating more calories from yogurt, but gaining less weight. And, and we hypothesized it was the probiotics. And, and since that time, there have been at least a dozen trials in humans and in animals, short-term trials, showing that when you eat yogurt, or if you actually take out some of the specific species and you give it to animals or even people, um, you know, it, uh, the, the, the bacteria in yogurt interact with the uh, uh, inflammatory receptors in your gut, alter nutrient sensing, alter production of chemokines and cytokines, that they're, they're, those are molecules that mediate inflammation. And actually, in some human trials, not many, not large, not long-term, but people who take yogurt or probiotics and are trying to lose weight, lose more weight in a, in a controlled trial. So, so, you know, I think for me, yogurt is clearly a health food, and, and it's probably in, at least partially related to the probiotics. And people always ask this question, um, what about, you know, sweetened? And I mentioned that. If you, if for people that ate sweetened yogurt, they still actually gained less weight, but they lost half the benefit. So, so you get twice the bang for your buck um, if you're having the uns, unsweetened yogurt. So I think clearly probiotics are important, but my preference is to get them from food rather than supplements. And a clarification in your study. So you had people who were eating more calories and were gaining less weight. Yeah, and in, you know, in animal experiments, when you alter the probiotics of, uh, excuse me, when you alter the microbiota of animals and they gain or lose weight, they often their caloric intake doesn't actually change, right? So it's really about the way the bacteria interact with the food. Um, and so there's lots of foods that we looked at that you actually eat more of them, you gain less weight. And fruits, uh, non-starchy vegetables, nuts, uh, yogurt, and whole grains were the, four, the, fi the five food groups that you ate more um, and you gain less weight. And can we talk then about, in the realm of weight gain, the question of antibiotics, which is something that uh, farmers, ranchers, have known for a long time, that if you give animals antibiotics, they will gain weight more quickly. Does that work in humans? Yeah, I mean, so um, antibiotics is a general term, right? There is a diversity of categories of antibiotics, and there have been, you know, in the last five years, a lot of studies, in particular in model mammals like mouse experiments in the lab that have looked at the effects of antibiotics on weight gain or weight loss or all sorts of other phenotypes. And there's no doubt that in those systems, certain antibiotic exposure can lead to, you know, shifting towards obesity in those animal models. I don't actually know in, in the human studies um, how much that's been shown, but it's certainly been shown in the animal um, systems. But I mean, I think one thing to think about with this is that even though we don't completely understand exactly what the community of microbes is doing 
in and on us in every situation. Um, antibiotics treated with animals or antibiotics treated with humans unquestionably disturb that community. And the question is, can you restore that community after the disturbance, and what are the short-term and long-term effects of that disturbance? And that's where people are still trying to figure it out. So there have been a bunch of studies where people take one pulse of antibiotics, these are in humans, and the microbiome, if you look at it, changes drastically. But a year later, it goes back to a very similar pattern to what they had before they took the antibiotics. There have been a few studies that have suggested if you repeatedly dose, it may not return to its original pattern quite as well. So you have to sort of think in context, we're an ecosystem. And its food is part of that ecosystem and how food impacts the microbes, but also, you know, exposure to antimicrobials and exposure to other microbes. So, you know, excessive cleanliness, um, you know, germophobia, paranoia about microbes and trying to be completely sterile probably is also, you know, a disturbance to the microbial community, and that could have short and long-term effects. Speaking of which, uh, antimicrobial soaps, they're kind of gone out of fashion. Any soaps at all, in my experience, that's gone out of fashion too. I pretty much stopped using <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking. The, the, the French, the French yeah. approach, yeah. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> uh, yeah maybe, maybe, Jonathan, you can give your example of the koala bears. I thought yeah, was, so yeah. I have a graduate student now um, who's been working on a project for the last year on um, this koala chlamydia epidemic that's been going on in Australia. And one of the problems that happens is they bring in koalas to treat them, to rehab them, and treat them with antibiotics to clear the chlamydial infections. And the theory that she has for her project is that that disturbs the microbial community, which, you know, in humans, disturbing the gut microbial community has, you know, unquestionably has effects, but they may be subtle. In koalas, they live off of eucalyptus, they need microbes to detoxify the eucalyptus toxins. And by getting rid of the microbes in their gut, they're no longer able to really detoxify the eucalyptus in a strong way. So there's, that's just an example. There are thousands of animal species where we know unquestionably that the microbiome plays fundamental roles, not just in their health, but in their survival. And if you expose them to antibiotics, like for this treatment, it can lead to these secondary effects, like, again, in this case, with detoxification of the eucalyptus. And this is, again, a clarification not to say that we are like anti-antibiotic, because like you started with saying, that is an enormous class of medications, uh, one of the most important advances in medical yeah. science. Um, but we, know, we also know that they've been incredibly overused and that we are facing uh, enormous disease and death as a result of that overuse. And so from my experience, talking to people about their microbiome and how antibiotic overuse or using them when you don't need them could be damaging to a person's health is actually an effective way of combating that overuse. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's exactly right. Of course, someone who has three young kids who've gotten really sick, right, with a really terrible ear infection or something, you know, antibiotics have their have their place, or, or and of course people can get far sicker, but we don't want to overuse them, and and that overuse has gone down a little bit in, in people, although they're still overused. But in animals, right, they're over they're used sort of at you know almost ad libitum, um, and I think that's a major 
challenge that we have to, to look at and de determine, you know, we shouldn't stop it completely, but determine when is, when is it relevant and, and when, when is it not relevant. Because at the end of the day, we're altering, you know, the microbial communities, uh, microbiome communities of, of animal species and, and ourselves. And, you know, this brings us back again, you know, thinking about obesity, of course, there's more than obesity going on here. The obesity epidemic in the U.S. started around 1980, and it almost started like a switch. You know, if you look at the 70s and the 60s and the 50s and the 40s, there wasn't a slow, gradual decline. Nothing was happening. And, and then in the 80s, it took off. And, and it's actually not clear what caused that, that to take off. And people say, well, it's marketing or it's portion size or it's McDonald's. But, you know, we had marketing and McDonald's and things in the 70s, right? It wasn't the age of golden lifestyle. Think about happy days, right? You know? um, so, so, uh, so, you know, what happened? And so I think certainly the increased in refined carbohydrates plays a major role. TV watching and, and marketing plays a major role for sure. Sugar-sweet beverages play a major role. I mean, there are some things you can point to, but what about antibiotic use, right? There's much more antibiotic use in this country in the last 35 years. And it's, I'm not saying that we know that that's the cause, but mm -hmm. it could actually play a major, potentially major role in, in, in the population obesity epidemic. Yeah. In anim, an, antibiotic use in animals and humans, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, when you have a friend who... Don't quote who me that that's true. <laughs> quote me that, I, you know, it's possible, yeah. <laughs> so if there's a friend who, who wants to give antibiotics to their kid every time they have the slightest earache, you can maybe say, hey, you don't want to mis disrupt their microbiome, do you? And they'll rethink it. <laughs>who have been doggedly looking at this question, trying to look at the um, really stubborn connection between certain infections and high rates of mental disorders. And I think probably the classic case is schizophrenia, which has been tied, um, it's been tied in terms of incidents for a long time to certain things that would indicate that it wasn't your conventional um, psychological disorder. <coughs> Um, but one of them is infection, and influenza infection in particular. In the 1918-1920 uh, flu pandemic, you had a lot of people who survived physically but ended up being incapacitated by mental illness. If you've seen the film Awakenings, that was um, a history of you know, one such case. So when you begin looking for connections, they, you find many of them, especially today, because we have tools today that we didn't have 30 and 40 years ago you know, high throughput sequencing, we can see smaller, uh, we can see evidence of infection, even when it's left far fewer traces than we were able to gauge in the past. And so now we have, schizophrenia has been tied to a whole panoply of infectious disorders, not only influenza, but Toxoplasma gondii infection, the one carried by cats you might have heard something about, and also herpes simplex, you know, virus. I mean, what's more ubiquitous than, you know, than that? So all of these are tied to higher incidences. And in some cases, we have a causal connection. In some cases, we don't. But we also have a spectrum of disorders that affects adolescent 
um, PANDAS is the name of it for the syndrome. And kids who have repeated uh, group-A streptococcal infections, i.e. sore throats, um, tend to have a high, higher rate of certain disorders that tend to be rare in the population. The disorders look different in these kids, too. So they have, they've developed tick disorders, Tourette's, that sort of thing, even anorexia. So the more scientists are beginning to have begun to look, I mean, the connection between influenza and schizophrenia, those came from people like Robert Yolkin at Johns Hopkins, uh, Fuller Torrey. Um, they have been looking at it for 30 and 40 years. But now you have more scientists who've been looking at it for, say, 20 years, like Alan Brown at Columbia, and they're beginning to find more and more connections. So I think that although the estimates, and they, I think they are just good guesstimates, are that you're responsible for like maybe 15% of mental disorders. Um, so we're not talking about the cause, we're talking about an overlooked cause. If it really is caused by infection, then we can prevent the infection, you know? We can treat the infection. And so I think it's a really, really important um, innovation. And, and to kind of go off of that, there, there are diseases like, like neurosyphilis where you, you have an actual infection. We've, we've for a long time known, oh, that's what's causing that dementia. That's a paresis I mentioned. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. But then there's also the idea, which you get into, of immune responses yes. to infections being what actually causes the pathology that we see. So the bug itself might not be causing uh, any mental illness or, but, or dementia, but it is an I inflammatory, an immune response to a bug that is no longer there that leads to something. And so, well, Jonathan, you're, you're a professor of microbiology and immunology, so you hit right at the crossroads. Well, so, so what I think is really interesting about the two sort of areas that we've been talking about, which is sort of pathogens that ha cause an explicit disease and the rest of the microbes in the system, which is generally what we've been calling the microbiome, is that they're all interacting with the host in a variety of ways, with the immune system, for example. And it's not just that you get, you know, every once in a while you get exposure to herpes or, and that, you know, triggers an immune response and that's in isolation compared to everything else. Your entire system basically has to train the immune system in terms of how active the response is, in terms of how it recognizes friend from foe, in terms of when you know, certain types of responses are triggered and where in the body those infections are triggering things. And so I think the, there's a, this gradient between sort of um, organisms that directly trigger a massive um, immune response uh, and uh, the rest of the community of microbes, which some of which have very subtle but very important effects on the system. And what, we, what I think we need to think about is that this is a, a complete system and we have to take sort of an overall systems level approach to thinking about, you know, the, the, what, how the gut gets colonized when you're young influences the immune response to other, to pathogens later in life and how the gut you know, gets colonized after antibiotic exposure probably affects some of the short-term responses there. So I think the, the thing that I find most interesting and that is both complicated but also very exciting is trying to understand these interactions between the microbes that don't in any obvious way cause a disease and all the other microbes that either cause a disease or have some beneficial effect and how the immune system and the gut and the neurobiological system and all of those interact to create a response. You know, this idea that bacteria, we have, you know, 
you know, billions of bacteria that aren't causing these responses, right, has led scientists to say, well, why, right? Why are we not responding to these bacteria? And there's probably many reasons, but one, you know, relatively recent, uh, you know, scientific advance has been scientists at the National Institutes of Health have discovered that some E. coli that are the natural, you know, uh, beneficial... E. coli e right here. <laughs> uh, e. coli produce a substance which they've called MECO-1, which uh, is very similar to melanocortin, which humans make. And melanocortin is an anti-inflammatory uh, molecule. And so they've shown, again, in, in experiments in animals and, and in, in cells, that, that the E. coli make this melanocortin, and it's an anti-inflammatory, and it suppresses the inflammatory response against them, which is good for them, but it's also good for the host. And if you actually give melanocortin to animals that have inflammatory bowel diseases like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, the melanocortin actually um, will, will, will cure that. And the really interesting relation to humans is before prednisone steroids were available orally, a treatment that was given to um, people with ulcerative colitis that worked was ACTH, ACTH injections. And the, nobody knew why it worked actually. But we now know that ACTH binds these same anti-inflammatory melanocortin receptors. So this treatment that we had that worked very well 40 years ago may be the same treatment that our natural E. coli give to us to prevent inflammatory bowel disease. So these, these you know, really interesting interactions with the immune system are, are uh, I think, fascinating. And I think that gets to an interesting idea, too, that this, this concept of microbiology, this phase right now of everyone talking thinking about it, it's not necessarily upending all conventional wisdom about how to be healthy. What it's doing is explaining a lot of it, explaining why the diets that we know to be good are good, explaining why certain things happen. And you looked like you were going to say something then. Well, yeah, I, want, I wanted to just um, point out that we're talking about good and bad uh, microbes, but it seems to be the case. There's evidence that a lot of microbes play more than one role, depending on your developmental stage, your environment, things like that. But I'm sure Jonathan can enlighten us <laughs> abundantly about that. I'm thinking about um, H. pylori because I I couldn't help but overhear a H. bit pylori, of the, the yeah, yeah stomach, stomach right? yeah the um, microbe that is responsible for a lot of gastritis and ulcers. Um, I heard that you were discussing obesity before I came in, and I thought you know one um, interesting parallel has been that as H. pylori has, incidence has decreased in the West. You also have had rising rates of obesity. And that leads some researchers to posit that perhaps it's got some protective role against obesity. I think Martin Blazer yeah, did some work on that, right. So, um, so I think that we have to remember that these microbes can be, are very versatile and they can play more than one role in our health. So, so I think that's really, a really important thing is all people are different. We have different histories of exposure to different microbes. We have different genetics. We have different environmental factors that have impacted us. And if you take one microbe, one particular clone of a microbe, so it's genetically identical, and you expose different individuals to that microbe in different stages of their life, or if they have different diets, or if they have different immune histories, those can have very different effects. And so single microbes, definitely it's we, we now say we shouldn't call anything a pathogen. It's, it, it, it is pathogenic in this situation. But another factor that is also really important for people to realize is within each kind of microbe, there are thousands and thousands of different forms, and the diversity within each species of microbe is way greater than the diversity that we see within humans, for example. So two different strains of E. coli can differ by 50% of their genes. 
They're still E. coli. They have some things in common, but one of them might be triggering this anti-inflammatory response, and one of them is, you know, making some toxin that causes people to die. And so the, the, that's true in Helicobacter pylori. That's true in every species of microbes. So the, there's a lot of complexity here that, you know, because the people, everybody varies within their life and between different people, and because the microbes vary, trying to get a handle on some of this complexity has been really hard. It doesn't mean that they're not playing important roles in a lot of these systems, but trying to figure out exactly what's going on in an individual person and what treatment you should use for that person's particular obesity or ulcerative colitis or whatever has been hard to figure out. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Today's show, Healthy Gut, Healthy Body, features cardiologist and Tufts University Dean Dariush Musafarian, health writer James Hamblin, author Harriet Washington, and UC Davis professor Jonathan Eisen. If you like today's show, check out Cancer, Breakthroughs and Challenges. The episode features director of Harvard and MIT's Broad Institute, Eric Lander, and Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote The Emperor of All Maladies and The Gene. Find it by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes. Now, back to today's show. Here's Dariush Musafarian. I would say, Jim, I think that it is um, upending, actually, some assumptions and, and, and considerations in the nutrition space, um, and probably in others. So, you know, one example I, I've mentioned is sort of, you know, weight gain. Just, you, it's not about calories, right? If you count calories, you think all calories are the same. But if different foods influence our microbiomes differently, then it's not about calories anymore. It's about the quality of the diet. And another great example is, you know, uh, in this country, we're very fortunate that, you know, true starvation is, is fairly rare. But in de the developing world, there's still a lot of kwashiorkor. Kwashiorkor is a disease of protein and calorie wasting. And it was always thought that it was just because people didn't have enough food. But people have noticed that in the same family, you can have siblings that have kwashiorkor and don't have kwashiorkor. And so there was this wonderful study published, I think, uh, two years ago now, where they did a range of experiments. And they looked at kids in the same families that had kwashiorkor and didn't. And before they treated them, they looked at their microbiomes, and their microbiomes were different. After they treated the kids that had the you know, protein and calorie malnutrition with supplements, right? they gave them extra food, they got better, they gained weight, they didn't look as sick, and their microbiomes normalized. But the amazing thing, and this is where it's upending what we understand, is when they stopped giving them the extra food and they measured them six months later, their microbiomes went back to the unhealthy microbiomes. And if they took those unhealthy microbiomes and gave them to rats, even rats that were eating, they caused kwashiorkor in the rats. And if they gave the healthy microbiomes to the rats, they, they, they uh, cured the kwashiorkor without changing the rat's diet. So it could totally upend the way we treat malnutrition in the developing world. It's not about sending people packets of food. It's about maybe restoring their microbiome. So I think it really has the potential to transform some of the ways we, we address you know, disease. Which brings me back to the idea of uh, fecal transplant, which we touched on briefly. Uh, Jonathan Schertz says, ask me about fecal transplant. And, and so you should feel free to do that yeah, afterwards. With, with pink sparkles, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, so I'll do that now, though. Uh, in California especially, but in other places, there, there are movements where people are doing DIY do-it-yourself. There's a YouTube video. Yeah. 
um, pe- people people are quick to think, oh, well, you know, if this if the microbiome is related to obesity, if it's related to mental illnesses, then I should take a healthier person's and uh, make it my own. Yeah, I mean, what, so yeah, so what, the fecal transplant thing is really interesting, and we didn't really talk about it, but it's been in the medical world unquestionably shown in the last sort of 10 years in particular that treatment of these persistent clostridium difficile infections, incredibly high, at least short-term, cure rate using donor fecal material transplanted into an individual that helps them clear these C. diff infections. Which is a deadly infection. That kills 25,000, 30,000 people a year in the United States, I think. Um, so it's a really big problem. It can persist in some people. They don't get cured by antibiotics or any other treatment. And this is a last resort for, for many of them. And it is incredibly effective. People report being better in eight hours. With some, I mean, it's just... After, abs- after years of... After no. years, 10 years of no success. So it's absolutely amazing and there are reasons why people think that similar fecal transplants might be effective for a panel of problems that relate to inflammation or relate to some type of microbial imbalance and that's what you already mentioned with certain types of ulcerative colitis and um, related disorders so there's you know dozens probably hundreds of clinical trials going on on some of these topics But unfortunately, there's also been a spiraling of snake oil related to this, where there are clinics advertising fecal transplants to cure people's schizophrenia. Um, There are many people advertising fecal transplants to treat children with autism. And there are many people who do this at home. There are chat rooms where people talk about this all the time. And, you know, I understand people are desperate, and it sounds magical. And the problem is that in... Like the Mayo Clinic, when they do fecal transplants, they screen the donors for 200 or so infectious diseases. They also screen them for all sorts of other phenotypes like obesity and like other things that you might possibly be transmittable, and that rules them out of being a donor. And in some of the cases, they screen them again six months later before using the fecal material. In the home transplants, zero screening. Um, so it's, it's really scary to some people who think that some of these treatments are going to be really important either, you know, in the gross way as fecal transplants or as many companies are trying to develop controlled, you know, pills to deliver, to deliver hundreds of microbes to a particular system. I think they have enormous potential, but you also see this sort of spiraling of people promoting it as though it's a magical cure for all human ailments. So that scares me a lot. So it's, it's this lumping tendency of wanting to say, okay, we'll just take a healthy person and put it into an unhealthy person, and that will make them better in all ways. And it's just not that it's going to be more complex than that. It's going to involve populating guts with s- certain species that might be beneficial to a specific yeah, I mean, person. Well, I mean, I don't really want to tell people what to do at home in their lives, but I think we should at least get out there and say that there are risks associated with this and that the science is not yet established for many of these treatments. And I would prefer that approach over, you know, saying, you know, we should treat this, you know, as we treat organ transplants, for example. It's a very different thing. And so as we start to want to know what we can about our own microbes and how to make them better, apart apart from the probiotic things, which you know, may or may not help some people sometimes. Um, 
there are startups, one of which I tried out, where you can get your microbes sequenced. So I sent in a sample, they did the DNA sequencing, and they told me what species I have. And um, they tried to make some guesses about what that might mean for me, um, but they weren't exactly <laughs> accurate. I mean, <laughs> but but these are these are things that we're going to see advertised to us increasingly in coming years as people want to know what to make of all this. So, is there any utility in doing that right now? Well, so I I think that the composition of the microbiome is one thing which you get from the genetics, but the function of the microbiome is also incredibly important. And to understand the function, you have to do metabolomics and lipidomics and you know, figure out all the things they're making, and that can change without the composition changing. So that's one challenge of just knowing composition. The other challenge, the other reason I wouldn't recommend that is that you can change your microbiome in days with lifestyle. So if you eat a healthy diet, you know, within a few days, or if you switch and have a terrible diet, your microbiome will change. And so sending that in and paying that money, you know, it would be interesting if you were just really curious and you wanted to do it, and you say, okay, I'm going to do this for a week and see what happens. You know, that's kind of your own personal test. But I don't think... It's not deterministic, right? You can change your microbiome through healthier lifestyle, through antibiotics, through infection, through the responses to those things. So it's not like a genetic sequence of your own body that's permanent. So, yes. so I, I wouldn't you know, rec recommend that. I, and, I, and I think the, the good thing to know is, again, many of the things we know about healthy lifestyle seem to help the microbiome. And, so, and that makes sense, right? It, it, Are yeah. not some of the changes a longer term, though? I had one researcher explain to me that um, uh, some populations are able to, for example, eat large amounts of sushi without consequence because they have a genetic complement from, I don't know, this is what I was told. <laughs> okay. Um, and um, I said, well, how is that? And he said, well, <clears throat> there are genetic changes to the microbiome that happen. They, ha they have organisms that we typically don't have who don't include that in our diet. I think he completed by saying that food is the environment of the microbiome that's, you know, most often overlooked, so... Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's, um, it's a mix of both, and where you sit on this. So if you compare all humans to each other, and there's definitely similarities of the microbiome that track with their genetics. That's what a lot of twin studies have done. There's similarities that track with their migration patterns. And there's, unquestionably, on average, humans are more similar to each other in most of their microbiome than we, any of us are to chimpanzees or gorillas or to other taxa. But within that, that's like an overall average. Within that total collection of thousands of species, it's only a small number of them, actually, that track really well with these mm -hmm. patterns. And the majority, a, a huge fraction of that diversity is malleable. And so what's interesting to, to me and what's really complicated is which ones of those are the, like, core, and which, what do those core microbes do, and which parts are the variable ones, and how can we manipulate the variable ones in some way to make sense out of it? So, you know, typing your microbiome right now, uh, and I'm on, by the way, full disclosure, I'm on the scientific advisory board of the company that he used to do this. Um, I mean, typing your microbiome is right now in the realm of sort of participatory sort of science in a sense where it's great to get more samples and to get more data and to start to get people engaged in thinking about the microbiome. And some people are doing experiments like changing their diet and looking at how their microbiome changes over time. But it's not something that I would ever imagine a clinician recommending at this point for, you know, you should do this in order to treat your ex. Uh, we'll, uh, yeah, so we're just about to go to audience questions. 
uh, I'll address that. And that's the interesting thing about this uh, this company is you pay, uh, I believe it was four hundred dollars or so, and <laughs> then they are able to collect the data. <clears throat> so they're basically uh, <clears throat> going to have a huge pool of people whose gene- whose microbial sequences they have, as well as some information about how old they are, where they live, maybe what they eat, whether they're obese, whether they have any illnesses, and then maybe make some correlations out of that, maybe see what's causing what, start to make sense of it, which is also what the what President Obama announced last month, the National Microbiome Initiative, which is to try to get many, many people to... Um, contribute data to this. So, so the, there's been this thing called the Human Microbiome Project for about uh, eight or nine years now. It started by the NIH. There was equiv- eventually a European Union, if it even exists anymore, um, uh, equivalent of that. And that was to focus on humans. What this new initiative that was announced sort of just a, a month or so ago um, by the White House OSTP was to try and expand the idea to not just focus on humans, but include you know, the development of technology, the training of students, the studies of other ecosystems, of plant microbiomes, of animal microbiomes, of soil microbial communities, and the development of things like metabolomics and proteomics and, you know, other approaches to studying the microbes and how we can learn from each other. So, for example, studies, I do a lot of work on plants and the microbiomes of plants, but the methods we use are virtually identical to the methods that you would use to study humans, yet the people who study plant microbiomes almost never talk to the people who study the animal microbiomes. There's just, so what the initiative was partly about was trying to get all the different federal agencies and also foundations, so Gates contributed you know, to this and the Moore Foundation played a role in this uh, announcement to try and get people to sort of consolidate information, consolidate data, and work together on the, the vision that it is important in all these different systems, but also the challenge of the complexity of doing it. So let's move to uh, some audience questions. A microphone will be coming around. Hi, can you just comment on the link between the GI uh, microbiome and Alzheimer's disease, and then also the importance of fiber um, in gut health and improving the microbiome? Well, um, actually, although I know there's been some research into Alzheimer's, I don't think of it as being very well characterized, which is to say I don't think that there are take-home messages, unless I'm missing something and Jonathan can enlighten us. Well, there's, a new, <laughs> there's some very new um, research that was published in the last month, some of it, on where people found fungi that were in the brains of people that were, um, had Alzheimer's. And they hypothesized, I don't know how well this was shown, but they hypothesized that microbes of certain kinds can form the concentrating site for then the formation of plaque, and that um, if you, in theory, completely sterilize the brains of individuals, that would prevent those forming as like individual sites for the accumulation. I don't think it's really well established at this point, but there's a, lit- a tiny bit of new data that, that has shown that there may be more of a microbial component to some versions of Alzheimer's than others. So I, I think it uh, was mentioned uh, that, you know, the f- your food is kind of determines your microbi- microbiome environment in a sense, at least in your gut. 
And there haven't been a lot of links between food and Alzheimer's. Um, so it's probably not likely that the, the microbiome plays a major role. On the other hand, most dementia is actually vascular dementia, not Alzheimer's dementia, which is, you know, repeated subclinical, uh, you know, small in, uh, strokes, basically, many strokes in your brain over many, many years. That's clearly related to nutrition. So, so I think that dementia as a class, vascular dementia in particular, probably will be really related to food and the microbiome. Alzheimer's, I think, you know, is, is probably not, I think, anything that's, that's um, yet even really strongly suggestive. Yeah. The only thing I've heard, well, the thing I've heard that I find most intriguing, but I have found that nobody has followed up on it, which may speak to how true it's likely to be. But uh, Lara Minerolitis at uh, Yale has speculated that a lot of the people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's might actually be suffering from CJD, Creutzfeldt-Jakob, uh, a prion disorder, so um, an infectious disorder. So I don't, as I said, I didn't find any follow-up work on this at all. And I don't know if that's because it was a new hypothesis or, or just no one found it useful enough to follow up on. But it's an intriguing thought. And can you comment on fiber for us, Darish? Yeah, so, you know, fiber's um, complicated. So, you know, first just defining fiber's complicated. There's soluble fiber, there's insoluble fiber, there's different definitions. Um, whether, you know, fiber by itself, especially um, soluble fiber has, uh, you know, insoluble fiber just bulks the stool. So, you know, it just makes people regular. Soluble fiber lowers cholesterol levels and lowers blood pressure a little bit. Um, whether it's crucial in and of itself for kind of microbiome health and cardiovascular health or whether it's all the things that go along with high fiber foods, right? High fiber foods, you know, are fruits and vegetables and nuts and whole grains that again have the, the phytochemicals of life, which I like to think of. And so I, I, my sense is that fiber is, you know, a little bit important, but it's more important that the natural foods that are fiber rich are good for you. So just adding, you know, artificial, fiber to foods probably won't have a major impact. Can you please talk about the relationship between um, sleep, or specifically lack of sleep uh, and the microbiome, as well as chronic stress, uh, and then what we know from the science about the association correlation between the two? That's very interesting. I have not heard much about So the association between stress, sleep, and microbiome. So I, I, I would love to know. I just have, I don't know any of any research in that area. So there probably have been papers, and I'll, I'll you know, be happy to, to look after this talk. But there's lots and lots of data about uh, low sleep and, and weight gain and obesity in kids and adults, um, and trials that show that if you, you know, randomize people to less sleep, that you change their leptin and their ghrelin, which is your hunger hormones. You're, you're hungrier, but you're not just hungrier for any food, you're hungrier for comfort foods. Um, so I think sleep is clearly part of the U.S. problem, and sleep has, at least by self-report, sleep has gone down in the U.S. since 1980, especially in kids with all the activities and homework and, and you know, video games and TV and movies. So, so sleep is clearly important for obesity, and then, of course, people who have obesity have different microbiomes. So, um, but I don't know if there's been studies that have made, you know, really carefully seen if sleep independent of weight gain is related to the, to the microbiome. I wouldn't guess that it would be, but we've been surprised a lot, so, so it would be so really there, interesting. So there are studies that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that, there, yeah, there are studies that have looked at both uh, at sleep and stress and the relation to the immune system, yeah. one's ability to fight off infection. So um, if you are sleep de deprived, you don't have the right amount of sleep, um, you are, have the wrong type and amount of stress you know, the malignant stress, then you're um, less likely to be able to fight off infection. Although, and cytokine production as a result of lack of sleep 
is often indicted. Are inflammatory. Right, in, inflammatory modalities that follow the lack of sleep, among other things. But a lot of it's paradoxical because some say, you know, uh, too large uh, amount of cytokines leads to what they call a cytokine storm. Basically, that means it um, just keeps the immune system from functioning well. But then I've read studies that said the exact opposite, <laughs> too little cytokine production. So I guess the take-home message is it's irregular cytokine production, but tied to both st um, malignant stress and um, lack of sleep. Uh, yeah, hi, Rich Besser from ABC News. The, the science you present around microbiome is, is so exciting. Uh, but I want to press you a little bit on the therapeutic side, uh, because uh, it's the wild, wild west in terms of what consumers can find when they go into their nutrition uh, store. What do you uh, personally do? do? Do you take probiotic supplements? And if so, do you do it based on, on faith or science? I mean, I, I, I consume a lot of fermented foods that um, some, some, yeah, beer. <laughs> um, some, evidence, some evidence that they help and some is based upon just an idea that we want to increase the microbial diversity in our system. Yeah, I, I personally, I don't take any supplements at all, but I eat healthy foods. It's, it's you know, every little decision is, is important, and there's lots of really tasty healthy foods. All of them are in my mind. So, so I think that there's really good evidence that some of that, the pathways of those benefits are through the microbiome. So yogurt, we've mentioned cheese. Cheese is actually not linked to weight gain, and it's not linked to cardiovascular disease, and it is linked to low risk of diabetes. Um, small effects, but, but interesting, and the mechanism is unclear, but but the fermentation process of cheese and the production of vitamin K2 could relate to that. Um, the active bacterial cultures in the rind could relate to that. Um, fermented milk is also linked to a low risk of diabetes where regular milk is not. So, so I eat foods that are, I think I know that are good for me and without really thinking about the mechanism, personally I don't take any supplements. Yeah. Well, um, faith and science, I think you need both. So what I do is I, uh, I don't take any supplements. I take multivitamins, so I think that's really important to have a you know, vitamin balance and make sure I have enough vitamin D since for most of us chronically. Um, but that's it. So, so And can I? I'll answer too. I uh, don't take supplements. I do also make sure to avoid antibiotics when they're unnecessary, and that includes their use in agriculture, which is where most of them are used, and that is in the production of, of animal products, so I have moved away from eating those as much as I can as a part of just <clears throat> overall microbial health in the world. So uh, we will need to wrap up. Uh, thank you all for coming. Dariush Mosafarian is dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Jonathan Eisen is a professor working in the Genome Center in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Immunology at UC Davis. Harriet Washington is a science writer, editor, and ethicist. She wrote the book, Infectious Madness. Moderator James Hamblin is a writer and senior editor at The Atlantic. Their conversation was part of Spotlight Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.